we're doing here is we're covering the end of Ezra. We're not doing quite the whole chapter because the last from verse 18 to verse 44 is a long list of names. Not lacking value, but not something we probably need to go into it in this form. Um, one of the things, too, just if you happen to be studying Ezra, is don't be misled as I was by the fact that this guy has that name because lots of guys have that name. So you can't necessarily draw conclusions without doing more research. Uh, so while Ezra prayed and made confession, so we're following from last week where we covered the prayer, so now we're covering the circumstances of how people respond to it. And one of the, there are several themes that we'll sort of hit during this. One is repentance, which is probably the major theme of this, this chapter. Another sort of a minor key here is hope. Um, a third one is leadership. And a fourth one is compromise. So if I don't cover any of those and you really want to hear about it, make sure you raise your hand and say, hey, you didn't talk about this and you said you would. So while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there is hope in spite of this. Therefore... Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children. This usually causes a, a couple stumbles in, as you go through the study of that. According to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib. We'll cover Eliashib, uh, and it's not a happy story, uh, in a future slide. Where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. Anyone didn't come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, his, all his property should be forfeit, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So, so Ezra's made his prayer. Now the people are responding. They're all gathered, a large number of them gathered before him, and they've decided what they're going to do. So just a couple comments while Ezra prayed and made confession, so that word confession you'll see in your, uh, your notes as well as the slide, it's, it's the idea of throwing your hands up, uh, not in despair, but, but really just in plea. So a lot of, I guess my observation on Hebrew words is a lot of them give us physical representations of the reality beneath them. And this is one of those where he just sort of throws his hands up to God and says, God, we've really messed up here. Um, so moving on to, so the people wept bitterly. One of the things that struck me about that is, how upset do I get at my sin? Upset enough to, to uh, weep bitterly? We'll see in the next uh, slide that the whole congregation gathers in the square 
in the pouring rain and comes together before Ezra to say, we really messed up here. Does my sin bother me that much? Not usually. Sometimes we presume upon God. You know, Romans 2.4, Marty covered it a while ago, but, but um, Paul warns the Jews, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead repentance? Sometimes because confession is, because the death of Christ has made confession readily available to me, I stop there. I confess. I move on. No big deal. You know, forgetting, of course, all that it took to make that possible and all that it cost Christ to be pure in the sight of God. Anyway, hopefully you don't struggle with that. Um, but there's hope for Israel. We're going to cover, as we go through these slides, sort of the magnitude of what Israel had done again and what they would do again even after this. So, but even in that, and even in spite of that in our lives, there's still hope. We are never beyond the forgiveness of God. And perhaps for some of you in this, some of you in this room, that's a real issue. You think you've gone too far, you've done maybe the unforgivable sin, um, or something like that, that too many, God can't possibly forgive this. But that's never true. That's a lie of the enemy. So those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and I give you that word down here, uh, tremble, to dread displeasing God. As I, as I implied before, we have acquired an ease because of Christ's sacrifice, an ease in coming before God. But I still need to really recognize the holiness and awesomeness, not in the sense we use it today of that's really great awesomeness, but in the sense of awe and dread. Remember, I need to remember, that the main reaction, the primary and first reaction of most of the people we see in the Bible on first seeing a manifestation of God himself is abject terror. They throw themselves on the ground and say, I'm done for. And of course, except for mercy, we would be. But So I do need to tremble at that. Tremble at the commandment of our God. How quickly I forget that what I read in that book is the commandment, not the suggestion, commandment of the master of the universe, the one who created me and made all that was, is, and will be. It's not a good idea. It's a command. And I do need to tremble at it in the sense that, not that I'm concerned about being the object of God's wrath, but because of this to me, my loving, mighty father. So then Shechaniah, and it's interesting that Shechaniah, so I don't know, couldn't tell you much about who Shechaniah is, but the point is that Shechaniah, this guy in the congregation, so far as we know, comes alongside Ezra and says, hey, look at all this stuff that's going on. This is your job, and we're with you. Our leaders need that. Marty needs it. Michael needs it. 
we need they need to make we need to make sure that they know that we are with them in this. Yes, it's their but it's our job to support them, to encourage them, and sometimes even to take point. Because you'll know that this uh, idea about putting away foreign wives doesn't come from Ezra. He may have talked over talked it over with a small group of leaders, but the idea is actually voiced by Shechaniah, by a guy in the who says, this is what we need to do to deal with uh, this grievous sin in the congregation, in our body. So we need to make sure that we are doing that in supporting the leaders that we have. And you see, when it says, this is your task, that Hebrew word, your task, essentially means it's on you. We, as in part of supporting our leaders, we need to make sure that we are holding them up as they take on a task that is, is really heavy. They bear the burden of us, and elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about it in just those terms, that God holds them to a degree responsible for us. I need to be seeking God for them, as well as supporting them in the way that we've described earlier. Be strong. That idea of be strong, you'll see in the reference there, is to me sort of like a, who has a little dog, a little ankle biter? Anybody admit it? Good. One man admits it. Courageous. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Slough it off on your wife. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> but my point is, ankle biters are just that, you know, they latch on and they never let go. It's like pit bulls. A little more serious with a pit bull than with it. But uh, it's, that's the idea here. Be strong. Don't let go. Just hold on. Keep on doing it until it's done. And uh, one of the interesting things, too, it, it says here, so they took the oath. That word oath, it actually means, like to take an oath means to seven. So repeat something seven times to really solemnize it. Of course, seven in, in Hebrew numerology is a number of perfection. So it sort of sets the final seal when I've said it seven times. So charging them by an oath. And then the last part that I wanted to cover on this slide was, was the faithlessness of the exiles. We'll cover this again in a slide or two to come. But think about... All that Israel has gone through from the time of entering the promised land till now. All that they've suffered. And now God has brought them back after the 70 years, brought them back into the promised land. This? After all that the sin, and this is one of the prominent sins that, that God, for which God held them responsible. Even after all that, they still do it. So even though they were the ones who were led away, their faithlessness leads them into this sin. I've got to be careful of that too. Um, yeah, I recognize sin, but that doesn't necessarily keep me from committing it again. I really got to do something about this font size. Um, another couple of comments. Um, one of the issues in this age is responsibility. Who's responsible for the sin in which Israel finds itself? Is it the children born of wedlock? Is it the wives? No, it's the men. So 
The responsibility for fixing it lies with the men. And we hear this a lot from Jack and Scott and Mike and other guys who, leads the men's, who lead the men's ministry. And back in the days of Jack Elwood, uh, who helped start the ministry that you see today. Um, it's that idea that as men, we are leaders. As men, we are responsible. And we need to acknowledge that and take it on and support one another in it. Else's. And then I'm not going to read all these. These are three passages that I put up here to illustrate sort of the transition in this idea of broken faith. You can read them at your leisure. But the first one is from Deuteronomy. And in verse 4, Deuteronomy 7, 4, he says, or 7, 3, you shall not make marriages with them, giving your sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. Okay, so you're warned. You got the word. You come into the promised land. And then the book of Judges. So they're in the promised land. His generation are gone. How do they do it? Well, the other peoples are still there. In some cases, because Israel's not strong enough to defeat them. In other cases, because they just say, eh, okay, we can live with them. They can hew our wood and draw our water, but but uh, we'll let them stay. And uh, the book of Judges, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by Moses. But sure enough, just as Moses had told them would happen, you see the end of that passage says, and they served their gods. So that process that culminates in the final destruction of Jerusalem, the temple of God being burned to the ground, and the exiles being sent away to, to Babylon, and one of the main factors was just this sin. So that's what Ezra deals with. So we're good. Well, not quite. So you read through the last passage there that I put up for you. talks about people of Israel doing this again, or doing this, well, okay, that was old. No, it's from Nehemiah 13, the next book we're going to study, the end of that book, and they're still doing it. After all the stuff that we cover here at Ezra 10, Israel still hasn't dealt with the sin. Because, you know, we say, we um, tell our... Shechaniah tells Ezra, you know, hold on really tight. Well, sin holds on really tight too. So we need to make sure that we help one another to really deal with it rather than letting it linger. Because with Israel, it lingers with disastrous consequences again. Then all the men of Judah and, Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month, so it's December. So it's not a Florida rain where it's June and it's raining o'clock and it's nice and warm and all that stuff. Uh, don't ever move to Florida, by the way. Um, on the 20th day of the month, all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And then they confessed... Ezra tells them to confess to the Lord, the God of their fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land, foreign wives. Then the assembly answered, you know, Ezra, we agree with you, but it's raining. And we have all these people here, and 
we can't just do this right now. It has to be done in a measured fashion. We agree that we have to deal with it, avert the fierce wrath of our God from us. And Israel listens. Israel listens, rather. He uh, selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name, on the first day of the 10th month, so January, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, so springtime, right around now, March, they'd come to end of all the men who'd married foreign women. And then the rest of Ezra is a list of all those men. It's about 100 families. So Ezra, who was, I mean, really heartbroken over this sin, calls the people to account. The people acknowledge their wrongdoing and say, let's do this reflectively, not reflexively. So not a knee-jerk reaction. Let's approach this prayerfully and uh, task our leaders to deal with this issue in our midst. So they do that. Ezra listens, and the people respond. A couple comments on that. One is, and I'll do them quite the order I, I put them on your notes, one is repentance. As I said, that was going to be the main themes of this passage. That is one of the main themes of this passage. Confession is insufficient in itself. Confession is a change of heart. Repentance is a change of direction. And I need both. Simply to admit that I'm wrong while continuing to move. Hopefully you've never done this, but I sure have. Where, okay, God, that was wrong. Let me do it again. Purity issues are really that way. You know, I looked at this woman in the wrong way. God, I'm sorry. You know, look right back. So, so I need to, uh, God, that's a good start. And then I need to use his help to turn from the way that I was pursuing that was displeasing to him. And maybe I need help to do that. Maybe I can't do it by myself. I can never do it completely by myself. But maybe I need, maybe God would call someone else alongside me to help do that. Perhaps it's my wife. Perhaps it's um, a tr- Another one is compromise. Remember we, we said back on the previous slide, Eliashib the high priest. Um, pretty responsible job. There's only one uh, high priest, and he's obviously the spiritual leader of Israel, and that's a pretty big deal. But the folks who start to teach you Nehemiah, hear his name again, Eliashib. He helps build the wall, all that's good. But then you get to the very end of Nehemiah. And during Nehemiah, there are two main opponents. You're going to hear their names a lot. <clears throat> One is Tobiah the Ammonite. You may remember Ammonites are not permitted into the congregation. Another is Sanballat the... Okay, so, big deal. Eliashib is related to both. So, here's a man who's the spiritual leader of Israel who is compromised. He is unable to act with integrity and decisiveness because he's fatally crippled. We can be there too. We can be there in our families. Um, And Dallas has shared this actually. His own, uh, where he felt really unable to deal with his sons because of his own issues that he was dealing with. I mean, I felt the same way. Probably many of you have. We have those issues so that we can act with integrity in the arenas in which God has placed us. Um, one of the persistent comments in 
dealing with Ezra is getting rid of the wives and children. Not getting rid of them, but separating the relationships. And that seems really harsh. And it is. But it's harsh because it's an issue that threatened the very life of the nation. So don't be, be careful, obviously, not to translate that to 21st century here, that that corrective action is what I need to do. That's not the point. It is I need to deal decisively, and I hate saying this because God will hold me responsible for it in my own life. I need to deal decisively with my sin. So, okay. You'll see in the next slide, if I put it up for you, I've given you some questions. One of the things God calls the first question there, one of the things that God calls us to is to lead our families. But as the reference that I put up there uh, indicates, we're to lead our families for their benefit, not for ours. So as I exercise leadership, for whose benefit am I exercising it? The reason that question is because a lot of time, you know, the leader is the guy, the, the lead sled dog is the guy who gets who's the only guy with a view, for example. Uh, and aside from the musher, he's the guy who gets to determine where they go. That's a pretty comfortable feeling. As leaders of your family, you get, to, you get the best to determine where, where they go to a degree in cooperation with your spouse. Um, but for whose benefit am I doing that? The benefit is supposed to be for the dogs behind me, not for me. So, but I was seeing in my, I see in myself a desire to lead for my own pleasure, to get to do things I want to do. So, probably not God's goal for me. What areas, here's the Eliashib question, what areas might there be in my life in which I've made compromises that impair my ability to act with integrity, and how might I correct those? And then the last one is the one we talked about on repentance. How am I doing it matching confession with repentance? Okay, over to your tables.